here, pause for a second. I'm going to go grab it. It's right upstairs. And you have to edit this out. All right. <laughs> this episode is called Joe Reads from All His Books. <laughs> Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Dorowski. How are you doing, Joseph? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, <laughs> uh, I've had better nights. <laughs> Do you want to tell the listeners what happened? <laughs> um, well, I had to watch a movie. Let's just say I'll have a lot more to say about this movie <laughs> next week. <laughs> and, uh, and then... I was excited to sit down and podcast, and I realized that I left my my real regular laptop at work, and I thought, oh, that's not a problem. I'll just use my wife's laptop, and then I realized it didn't have any software installed on it, and uh, and everything was taking a very long time. So I aborted that and had to run to my office and get my laptop, and now I'm here, and yep. I'm okay. I'm excited to talk about this uh, this work tonight. A peek behind the uh, podcasting curtain. We were planning on double recording tonight, but we're now down to just a single record. <laughs> just, just this episode you're getting right now, and it's late. <laughs> yes, it's a good thing uh, my office is uh, very close to my house. So tonight's episode, listeners, is brought to you by listener Carl, a patron who bought a topic for us and asked us to talk about the Incredible Hulk from the storyline called Planet Hulk. This was written by Greg Pack and drawn by Carl Pagolian and Aaron Lepresti. And it originally appeared in Incredible Hulk numbers 92 through 105, which were published between April 2006 and June 2007. And uh, those those numbers just know that <laughs> the Incredible Hulk uh, series has been relaunched a couple times. If <laughs> all, all the numbers have been kept consecutively since 1962 when the character was created, it probably would have been in the 500s uh, okay. for those issue numbers. So this story was inspired when Marvel editor-in-chief uh, pitched out the idea of Hulk dressed as a gladiator. And he just threw that to writer Greg Pack, and he said, take it and run with it. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and my, how, how he ran with it. <laughs> what a story. And this uh, story was also adapted into a straight-to-DVD movie, or, yeah, animated movie, in 2010. Was it, which, was it drawn by the same people? It was, de- it was, um, th- they followed the artistic style as closely as they could for animation. Okay. Uh, it, probably in the same way that, um, All-Star DC... Superman? Yeah, yeah. All Star Superman imitates the style of Frank Quietly. When Marvel does it, if it's based on a specific storyline, they're probably going to mimic the artistic style for the most part. I really like the art in this. Yeah, um, it doesn't follow all the storyline beats point for point. Um, Some of it becomes rights issues because Marvel's. Uh, so some of the character rights are farmed out to different studios. <laughs> so there's an uh, appearance by one Marvel character in this that uh, they couldn't put it into the animated film, so they had to stick a different one in. Huh. Okay. Todd, what do you know about the Hulk in general? About the Hulk in general? Yeah. Um, uh, I know that his name is Bruce Banner. He had some uh, accident with radioactivity that uh, turned him into a sort of Jekyll and Hyde kind of character where he's like the mild-mannered Bruce Banner, but then when he gets mad, then he turns into Hulk and starts smashing things, and he says, Hulk smash. Yeah, I think that's probably our general conception (laughs) of it. Uh, He was created by Stanley and Jack Kirby in 1962, and if I may, I am going to quote from myself. (laughs) uh, My preface to the Ages of the Incredible Hulk essay collection. 
uh, I was the editor on this, and in the preface, I kind of get into some of the the issues with the Hulk. Um, that version that you just described is probably the most commonly uh, understood one, or the one that we always see adapted into other media. Uh-huh. But as I say here, it is unlikely that any other American comic book superhero simultaneously has such a clearly understood iconic identity. If brilliant scientist Bruce Banner gets mad, he transforms into a giant super strong rage machine called the Hulk. And also such a fractured and multifaceted history in the comic books. There's been a gray Hulk, a green Hulk, a dumb Hulk, a smart Hulk, telepathic links to humans, different causes for the transformation, wildly vacillating strength levels, and so on. (laughs) This indeterminacy surrounding the character began almost immediately as Jack Kirby and Stanley shifted the nature of the Hulk's powers and character several times in the first few issues. Perhaps it is due to the radical changes that occurred in these earliest adventures that a level of elasticity became part of the Hulk's defined nature, and subsequent writers were more comfortable stretching and tweaking the basic formula in unexpected directions. So I say that because... This Hulk doesn't match up <laughs> with the one that you just described. Yeah, he doesn't. And I was I want to ask you about that. Um, this Hulk in Planet Hulk almost never transforms back into Bruce Banner. Uh, only just for a second. And he's more eloquent and smarter than a lot of the Hulks that yes. have existed in other incarnations, both in the comic books and in film and television. Yeah. Is there an, is there an explanation for that? Or... Uh, just uh, the Hulk <laughs> tends to be whatever the writer wants <laughs> um, at, at various points. There have certainly been times where he is just the dumb rage machine. Mm-hmm. This one, uh, Greg Pak kind of said he's always angry because <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll get to the plot points that start off the story, <laughs> but he, he's pretty bitter <laughs> through the entire run. So he just stays as the Hulk, uh, except for that one brief moment that uh, okay. in the series. I have heard some explanations on this one that the, well, hmm, that might be getting into spoiler territory. Hulk's not on Earth during the storyline, and the environment may be slightly more hostile than would be good for Bruce Banner. <laughs> yes. And and so just as a means of surviving and breathing, the Hulk is kind of the go-to. The go-to yeah. form. Sure. Yes, because uh, it is established, though, that, that anytime Bruce Banner's going to die, Hulk takes over immediately. Like, um, there have been issues where Bruce Banner, like just unable to handle being the Hulk anymore, tries to end his life and can't. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like our producer Andrew was saying, in this other planet, things are so hostile. If he ever became Bruce Banner, he would die immediately. So the Hulk sure. just kind of stays in charge. Yep. So the the short version of Planet Hulk is uh, Hulk is um, tricked into getting onto a spaceship by some of the other Avengers. Uh, and they send him shooting into space, hoping that he will land on... A, a, a safe planet where there won't be any intelligent life forms and he can just smash the heck out of that planet if he wants and live his life alone without hurting people. It turns out that uh, all of his banging around in his ship sends him to the most hostile planet <laughs> imaginable, <laughs> full of intelligent beings, and he has to figure out what he's going to do when he gets there. If that sounds interesting to you. Uh, you can check out Planet Hulk. You can find it on Marvel Unlimited. You can also buy it uh, on Amazon. And if you go to uh, our link, uh, protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon, and pick it up, then uh, you'll be helping out the show. And anything else that you buy <laughs> will also be helping out the show if you use that link. So, And if you are going to Amazon to look at buying things, you might consider Ages of the Hulk by Joe Dorowski, or edited, collected by Joe Dorowski. Uh, or any number of other ages of superheroes books. How many is it now? I think the Hulk was the sixth, but there'll be a seventh out 
in the next several months. That's amazing. You're an example. You're an example to us all. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. <laughs> Uh, in in studying superheroes, yes, <laughs> that's the example I'm setting. You're an example to us all <laughs> in studying superheroes. One other way to help out the show is to go to Patreon.com/slash/protagonist, and you can become a patron. And if you do so, you can request at certain levels. You can request a topic for us to discuss, and that's how we got this topic this week. Was again from listener Carl, who is one of our patrons, and asked us to talk about this storyline. All right, here now is the full spoiler synopsis of Planet Hulk. The Hulk has been launched into outer space. A group of heroes deciding the Hulk is just too much of an uncontrollable wild card have sent him towards an uninhabited planet that can support life in the hopes that Banner slash Hulk will be able to live out a life of peace and tranquility without destroying anything else. Unfortunately, his ship is sucked through a portal and he lands on an inhabited planet. Weakened by his trip through the portal, Hulk is immediately captured by soldiers of the Emperor of Sakaar and he has an obedience disc attached to his chest. In short order, we see that the planet has a diverse population, including a bug-like race of creatures that seem to be the lower class and a pink-skinned race of humanoids that are the ruling class in an unsurprising twist since the pink-skinned aliens are called imperials and are wearing regalia reminiscent of ancient rome hulk and other slaves are forced into gladiatorial combat hulk quickly kills a monster in the ring and when one of the bug-like aliens that was fighting alongside hulk tells him who the emperor is hulk attacks the emperor the emperor wearing battle armor insists on fighting the hulk himself but after hulk wounds the emperor's cheek the emperor's bodyguard a female gray-skinned alien named Kaira intervenes and stops the Hulk long enough for the Emperor to shoot the Hulk from behind and claim victory. Hulk is then sent to the Maw, a sort of training ground for gladiators that most gladiators do not survive. Hulk, of course, survives, and he forms a bond with a group of fellow gladiators who will be in combat with him next time they enter the arena. Among this group are a rock-like alien named Korg, a bug-like native named Meek, that's M-I-E-K, uh, a gray-skinned alien named Heroim, <laughs> an unnamed brood, and the brood are another bug-like alien in the Marvel Universe that are usually fighting the X-Men, but in this case, there's one here on this planet. And two of the Imperials, a young woman named Elo and a man named Lavin. On their way to the arena, Hulk and this group defeat a roving band of Wildabots that had been plaguing the natives and that the Emperor had been ignoring. The Wildabots are just wild robots yes <laughs> um that seem to have gone feral a group of rebels tries to free the hulk believing that he is the key figure in a prophecy but he refuses to go elo uh, sides with the rebels and leaves the group of gladiators the group then uh wins their next battle in the arena though lavin dies in this battle the surviving members of the group form a pact and are now called warbound for their next battle in the arena, the Hulk, now in full gladiator regalia, like feathered helmet, shoulder, or the spiked shoulder pad, <laughs> giant battle axe, uh, the kind of the skirt that we associate with, with uh, kilt. kilt. Yes, the, the the kilts that we associate with gladiators. Um, they must now fight the Silver Surfer, who is another long-standing Marvel character from the 1960s, um, one of the most powerful cosmic beings in the Marvel universe. But the Silver Surfer, we don't know how yet. He has an obedience disc attached to him. We find out that he also got through that same portal and was weakened when he first arrived on the planet so they were able to put an obedience disc on him during the fight hulk breaks silver surfer's obedience disc and the silver silver surfer now freed breaks everyone else's obedience disc and he offers to take hulk back home but hulk refuses hulk and his warbound go on the run from the emperor now the emperor's bodyguard kaira is leading the hunt for the warbound with very little success everywhere hulk is seen the natives praise him as the sakar son the savior from their prophecy 
Galaxy, but he rejects this title. Uh, also, it should be noted, the Hulk's blood actually makes this desert planet bloom with life, and plant life starts to grow <laughs> so cool. wherever he bleeds. Kaira finally catches up to the Warbound, but the Emperor has become impatient, and he releases a plague called Spikes onto them. Spikes essentially turn any living thing they touch into a zombie that then hunts other living things to turn into zombies. Kyer can't believe that the Emperor did this, and she now joins the Warbound. Side note, uh, Meek, during all of this process, he found uh, his hive dying, and he kind of underwent a transformation from being a tiny, sniveling bug creature into a giant, monstrous bug creature. <laughs> um, the Spikes, those zombie creatures, now have the Warbound surrounded, and Hulk rips apart the planet to release a flow of lava onto them. <laughs> It's a strong move. (laughs) (laughs) Then he leads an attack on the capital city. Before attacking the city, Hulk and the Warbound find the sentient leaders of the Spikes. And they explain, these sentient beings explain that the Spikes are supposed to be a spacefaring race that feed on the energy of dying stars. But the Emperor somehow captured them and has trapped them and is using them on Sakaar as kind of a biological warfare. Hulk promises to help them return to the stars, and these spikes try and take control of all the other spikes that have been released on the planet, and, you know, use all their focus to actually try and rein them in and bring them to to attack the Emperor, instead of just being mindless zombies. Hulk and the Emperor, uh, during this, uh, have a fight, and they exchange words, several blows, eventually Hulk wins, though in realizing his defeat, the Emperor arms a doomsday device that will cause the planet to rip apart, but in perhaps the most exaggeratedly masculine thing ever, Hulk leaps into the splitting chasm of the planet. Planet and pulls the tectonic plates back together. He's quite <laughs> holding, strong. Yes, holding the planet together. Um, after this, Hulk is revered, and the people want him to be their king. He wants Kyera to be his queen, and she agrees. But bearing old grudges, a group of the bug aliens and the pink aliens want to fight. Hulk tells them, fine, if they want to fight, go ahead. So they arm themselves and go to the arena to fight to the death. But as they start fighting, Hulk leaps down and says they all must fight him before they can fight each other, and he charges at them. In panic, they throw their spears and swords at him, but he's just fine. He tells them, we are all warbound. Embrace your brothers, or I'll kill you myself. <laughs> they all embrace. Kyera and Hulk are married. Kyera tells Hulk that she is pregnant, and everyone loves Hulk, so this is just glorious. This is the best experience ever for uh, the natives of Sakaar are turning the shuttle Hulk came to their planet in into a monument, but something goes wrong, and the warp core explodes, and it destroys the capital city, and it kills Kyera. And Hulk is now angry. <laughs> you would not like Hulk when he's angry. Uh, the warbound who survived the explosion take Hulk up into a spaceship, which Hulk directs towards planet Earth. He is very angry at the heroes who sent him here. The end. Well done. Thank you. Ooh. And listeners, if you're curious, the next chapter of this is called World War Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if, you, if you liked this one and are interested in what happens next, you could pick up World War Hulk. I was so sad after this ended. I came home and, and, uh, and we were eating dinner and I was just like a big sulky mess. <laughs> and Betty's like, what happened? Uh, like, why are, you so, why are you so upset? And I said... Just for the saddest story about the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> and she looked at me like, you're the biggest idiot. You're the biggest idiot. <laughs> That's I mean, so sad. Okay, I need to mention, I, I, I meant to mention it uh, when I was doing this. We, the only time we see Banner in this, um, there's kind of one 
side story that is inside Hulk's head where you see him kind of shoving Banner underneath the whole time um, and, and trying to remain dominant as the Hulk. But we also, when Hulk marries Kyera, she says, I need to know, if we're, if we're going to do this, I need to know all of you. And Hulk actually relaxes and allows her to see Bruce Banner. And she, ah, oh, so good. It's so good. He's so happy. I love his his little Hulk smile. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I think it might be worth noting in the finale that uh, he heads to Earth thinking that the heroes who sent him planted a bomb on his ship, planning to destroy him. Or destroy the ship so that he could never return to Earth, yeah. at least. Um, but it is also revealed that it was triggered by someone who wanted him to be more angry. Didn't, they didn't like Happy Hulk. Right. It was, it was in World War Hulk. You find out there's more conspiracy behind this explosion. Uh, but it wasn't the heroes who sent him there. I um, was so sad. I just wanted him to be Happy Hulk and be married forever. But yeah, well, you mentioned the Hulk smile. Not many artists in Marvel history get to draw a smiling Hulk that is like legitimately happy and not just sneering at about to destroy someone. I think he's so cute. <laughs> I love the art in this. I have uh, my favorite action figure that I own is the Gladiator Hulk. Really? It's modeled on the art in this perfectly. And when Joe says that, it means it really means something because <laughs> I, don't has, a, I don't have a huge collection of action figures, but you have uh, quite I a collection. A, well, I my kids give me action figures for every birthday. Okay. <laughs> and I encourage that, and then I play <laughs> with them with them. <laughs> okay. Well, I really, uh, really enjoyed this story. I'd heard really good things about it. The world building that Greg Pak does in this is pretty impressive as far as setting up an entire culture <laughs> and the different races that are on this planet. And mm-hmm. uh, he gets into also the backstory for every one of the Warbound. There's one issue where they kind of give flashbacks mm-hmm. of, of each character. And they even released, Marvel did, um, I'm trying to rem- find the exact name of it. It was called, let's see, oh, the Planet Hulk Gladiator Guidebook. <laughs> Which was kind of like um, an encyclopedia entry on Sakaar, and it gave the maps of the layout, which I always love, fictional world map. <laughs> <laughs> and it explained some of the history of the different cultures that are found there, and it gave the backstory of all the characters. And you know this all came from Greg Pak, like, just building this world yeah. in his in his head. Because um, a lot of, in Marvel comic books, a lot of times they're... You know, they're building on something that's already been established or races that are already been established. And most of what happens in Planet Hulk is in, was invented for the first time for this particular story. Um, the exceptions oh. are Silver Surfer showing up. The Brood are traditionally an X-Men villain. They've been around for a long uh-huh. time. And the character of Korg <laughs> appeared in, like, seven panels of an early Thor issue and was never seen or heard of again, like, from the 1960s. Yeah, cool. <laughs> And and Grey Pack borrowed that character from like a fairly obscure storyline uh, from the 1960s. But other than that, he made up all of Sakaar and um, the different races that are there. So the the Brood character, uh, she says that she was living on her planet, and then something happened, and she was like encased in crystal, and then that crystal became a ship, and everybody else died, and it took her to there. Is that is that a tie-in with another story? I believe there's a story where the Brood homeworld is destroyed. I don't know which one it is, but I, I know I've heard other references okay. to the Brood homeworld being destroyed. It, it kind of had that, like, like it smelled like it, it came from another story. Yeah, and... Kind of like Korg's story, except Korg's story, it was pretty obvious that it came from another story, cause, <laughs> because they just they just drop in that panel from the <laughs> yeah, Thor. It, his flashback is, is I think they're redrawn, the but it's pretty much page, you know, panel for panel, what happened in yeah. that Thor story. Up through the 90s, 
really through the 60s and the 90s, uh, uh, from the 60s to the 90s, Marvel Comics, whenever they did something like that, they would put in an editor's box that would say, like, go see Uncanny X-Men yeah, issue uh-huh. number 179 to find out, you know, what happened to the Brood Home World or right. something like that. But in the 2000s, when Joe Quesada was the editor-in-chief, he felt like that um, kind of became too intimidating for new readers and made them feel like they were always on the outs. So All they wanted right. the stories to kind of stand on their own and not have... Um, obvious external references, so they did away with the editor caption boxes that would guide you to the others. It also seems like in the age of the internet, it's just easy if you feel like, oh, I bet that comes from something. You can look it up, and in three seconds, you can find the answer. Yeah, I'm sure Where in part- the 70s, I think yeah. that would have been much harder. <laughs> I'm sure that is part of the the rationale as well. Yeah. So what do you like about this story? Um, Gladiator Hulk is just a great image. Uh-huh. <laughs> have to start with that. Um but then there's also he really kind of follows the hero's journey <laughs> pretty uh-huh. well in this um you know entering this new world not understanding where he is um but you know gaining his friends and new abilities as as he cycles through it and overthrowing the the great foe uh-huh um that he has but then there's also for me an interesting thing that seems to come up over and over is this idea of heroes and monsters and the use of violence and when the use of violence makes you a good guy versus when it makes you a bad guy. Uh-huh. Um, and, and what purposes we have for that. Famously, there is a lost 20 minutes of our podcast <laughs> where we went through, uh, discussing Rudy of all things. <laughs> we, we kind of touched on the idea of the American myth of regeneration through violence when, uh, violence serves as kind of a positive force. And I think this does a really good job of kind of exploring, our relationship with violence mm-hmm. and um, both in terms of what we idealize, but also what we condemn, but also when it is, is justified and, and something that should be uh, recognized as a beneficial force. And when it's just violence for the sake of violence and, and Hulk is a really fascinating character to do that with because he is probably the least heroic of the Marvel superheroes. Yes. Um, you kind of called him a Jekyll and Hyde figure and, those 1960s issues, it's really interesting to, to see how the Hulk functions. Um, I kind of touched on that. He's, they bounce all over the place. Uh, they don't really seem to know what to do with him. And I think part uh-huh. of that is he's treated as just kind of a walking anger machine, <laughs> like un- unrestrained id, I guess. And um, it's really interesting in those early Hulk issues that Marvel kind of gets away with something that was against the censorship board at the time, in which there was something called the Comics Code Authority that dictated a lot of what could and could not be done in comics. And one of the things that couldn't be done is um, that figures of authority could not be shown as the bad guys. And then Hulk, if you're sympathizing with the Hulk, the U.S. military kind of becomes a bad guy because yeah. they're always hunting him and trying to stop him. And so he's always had that kind of interesting relationship with huh. uh, blurring the lines between hero and monster. And this one just makes it really explicit. I think I think um, it's worth noting that at the time, Stan Lee had a lot of experience writing basically monster short stories. That was yeah. one of the things he, he did predominantly uh, leading it to the, the second wave of superheroes in the mid and later sixties that he worked on. Yeah. Stanley worked for Marvel comics from the forties 
through the 50s and uh, then created most of the Marvel superheroes we're most familiar with in the 1960s. Uh, but in that period, in the 1950s, because of things like the Comics Code Authority and others, he just kind of did a lot of morality tales of, of monsters that, you know, then get punished for their crimes at, at the end of the, the short story, just kind of simple sci-fi stories or, or monster stories. And Hulk is definitely borrowing from that tradition. Yeah. Sorry, I was just uh, I was just looking at some of the panels that I, some of the pages that I marked that I really liked from this. And I'm just amazed at the artwork. Yeah, the art is really consistent, which you don't always get in long story arcs. Mm-hmm. With um, comics, often the the artists need a month off <laughs> in order for the shipping schedule to stay on. Yeah. Uh, but this one, it's just the same quality, same same guys throughout, and it all looks really good. Yeah. And it, they kind of draw a different Hulk face than a lot of Hulk faces I've seen before. Uh-huh. Um, has a little more, I don't know... <laughs> Expression, I guess. Personality. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, what are some of the the panels, and is it art-based or story-based that you've marked them for? Um, Well, I think that uh, Hulk's relationship with humans is really interesting. The way that he sees humans, he sees the, he calls them, uh, you know, puny humans, little pinkies. There's a part where he's talking with uh, the brood and Meek, and he says, he says, oh, these humans... And Meek says, humans? And and Brood says, uh, his people, I've eaten a few. Individually, they're practically defenseless, but with their machines and their heroes, they can overcome considerable challenges. And Hulk says, their machines and heroes won't save them. You you can see he's kind of, he's very brooding. (laughs) Yes. That's like really great expression. You only see kind of half his face. Um, But again, we've talked on this podcast before about like human exceptionalism (laughs) and even uh, these crazy aliens with the brood are just terrifying. They have these giant sharp uh, teeth and kind of like the alien in Alien. Yeah. And let's just say I don't think the brood will ever appear in an adaptation of the X-Men films because there could possibly be a lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> they they were created shortly after Alien, and there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. <laughs> but for, the, for, for um, uh, one of the brood to say that she's, she has a healthy respect for humans, it's, it's kind of a thread that we see throughout the Marvel comics and throughout uh, sci-fi, I think, in general, that no matter how big and bad and scary... Uh, aliens and and monsters get that humans are always kind of exceptional and and yet I think one of the great one of the great things that we see from Hulk stories is that the monster is really is really inside humans right so we yeah. have this potential for great good but also pretend, potential for just unimaginable damage. I've been I've been listening a lot to this um, lore podcast. I think I've mentioned it before on this on here. I've binged it all now. It's a quick binge because there's not it that am- many episodes. It's amazing. But yes. one of the things that he does um, uh, is he uh, he will present like a, a monster story, and he'll say these are monster. This is a monster like a werewolf or a vampire or ghost or whatever um, puka, and. And these are all of the horrible things that said monster is said to have done. And then he'll go back and find the historical um, story behind these monsters. And it turns out that the monster is really us. It's always us. And often it's – so sometimes it's um, like someone who's being accused of of something – 
well, I remember one where essentially it was an early serial killer, but people, they didn't have that language. They didn't understand mm-hmm. what this was. But then the way that they punished him <laughs> was as cruel as anything. And he just kind of said, you know, everyone was a monster in the story. Yeah. Basically. And, uh, and I think that there's something, there's something of that in, in these Hulk stories and, and, and inside of Bruce Banner is the Hulk. And <laughs> we all wish that that weren't true, but I think that it's, often true and that there okay. is there is potential for huge unimaginable damage inside of all of us i'm gonna quote some from a the last essay in my essay collection of the ages is incredible hulk it's by brooke southgate and this one is actually an essay that is about world war hulk the follow-up story to planet hulk but um she this is from her opening uh and it says Let's see. The very first panel of the five-issue series, World War Hulk, states that Hulk, the Hulk, is a monster, a monster who fell from the sky, and depicts him with his arms raised over his head, his mouth open, and debris scattered around him. The following panels describe the monsters he encountered on Sakaar, and show how even the Hulk can be harmed. Yet the last panel of the first page is only a close-up of his gleaming green eyes with the words, He never forgot the real monsters. The juxtaposition of the Hulk and the alien monsters with the superheroes that he calls the real monsters, revealed on the next page, sets up a probing of not only what is considered monstrous, but also questions the opposing side what it means to be a hero. The claim that everyone within the pages of the, of the comic is a monster leaves the reader to wonder whether there are any heroes at all, or with more nuance, whether heroes and monsters are the same. <laughs> it's a really good essay. So, <laughs> I, I, that's one of my favorite essays in the collection is uh, the one on, on World War Hulk, which continues a lot of the themes that we're seeing developed in this one. Because, I, I mean, let's run through the way that we see when in this story is violence heroic and when is it not? You know, when is, <laughs> it's, it's like agent or not agent, but hero or monster. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hero or monster. So, um, so Hulk shows up on the planet. He confronts the emperor and he cuts the emperor. I say heroic. Yes. Um, then in, in the Maw, though, he kills this lava monster that's there in the Maw. Well, I, I, a lot of what he's doing initially, and this is, I mean, you said he's like pure id, right? Like, yeah. Uh, in order for something to be heroic, does there have to be, like, conscious thought behind it? Like, does it have to be motivated? Like, does it have to come from a certain well? Or is it the act in and of itself that's heroic, whether or not? there's any forethought or, or like goodness behind it. All right. So I've been reading this book called I wear the black hat grappling with villains, real and imagined. And it's by, by a guy named Chuck Klosterman. And in this, he's exploring the idea of villainy and what makes someone evil or, or a villain. And he's, he deals with both narrative fictional characters and real world characters. Um, so for example, I think it's the second chapter. It starts with this. Here's a list of anonymous people who in theory are bad citizens and social pariahs. One men who hijack airplanes Two con artists, three funk narcissists, four drug dealers, five athletes who use race as a means for taunting an opponent. And then he goes on. Here's a list of charismatic people who under specific circumstances and when injected with a high dose of false emotional attachment can never be villains. One, men who who hijack airplanes. Two, (laughs) con artists. Three, funk narcissists. Four, drug dealers. Five, athletes who use race as a means for taunting an opponent. And he kind of goes through an exploration of both real and fictional characters that are those things 
and times that they're kind of revered as heroes, even folk heroes that kind of have a life on their own after their, you know, on their own after, after their exploits are done or that are protagonists of TV shows that, that become very popular, um, that fall under, you know, both those categories or, mm-hmm. and so I guess <laughs> he's doing that as an exploration of villainy, but we can, we're, we're kind of doing the same thing for heroism <laughs> in this uh-huh. instance where the same, means and methods are being applied by oftentimes the same character in different settings. And he's being labeled as a monster or a hero. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's complicated. You know, if, if he's in a gladiator ring and the emperor throws a, some crazy monster at him that, that nobody's ever beaten and Hulk just hits it one time and it's dead. (laughs) It's like, is that hero? Is there anything like particularly heroic about that? Like what defines heroism? Is is being a hero saving your own neck, which is what Hulk does over and over again. But there does seem to be a point at at some part in the story where Hulk decides, I'm not, it's it's probably after the Silver Surfer incident, incident, when Silver Surfer says, I can take you back. And Hulk says, no, actually, I feel like I need to stay and help these people. That's to me, that seems to me like, like a moment where we could say Hulk's making a decision to do the right thing. Yes, but then when he's on the run, he doesn't always <laughs> really, uh, you know, do what's best for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd say, for me, the moment where he is clearly the most planning the use of his violence for the greater good is um, when after he's been crowned king and the factions are still infighting. And he says, you want to fight to the death? Fine. Yeah. Go fight to the death in the arena. But then he jumps into the arena and mm-hmm. says, before you kill each other, you got to go through me. Um, and it's a violent moment. Like when he gives that speech of we are all war bound, like he is, looks like a porcupine <laughs> with all, all these spears, spears sticking, sticking out of his body yeah. and his blood's trailing around him, but plants are already starting to grow out of the, the blood that's trickling down. Uh-huh. Yeah. He, I mean, it's odd to say that he's all over the map, but he's also incredibly consistent, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that's what it feels like. And I guess that, uh, kind of what I said at the beginning, that's what the whole history of the Hulk and Marvel comics kinds of feels that way mm-hmm. that he could be all over the map, but it's actually pretty consistent because that being all over the map is part of the character now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another page that I had marked that I thought was really interesting is um, it's actually part of the Silver Surfer's ba- backstory. He says, so they say, Silver Surfer, how did you get here? And he says, I lived on a world where men had created a paradise. No war, no crime, no illness. We wanted for nothing, sought only pleasure. I hated it. I longed for the age when, instead of just watching the history made by others, men struggled, journeyed, fought for survival, for knowledge, for life itself, and then the darkness came. Uh, He says, Galactus, I alone went forth to fight and was transformed. I became the Silver Surfer. And then, uh, I I think this is really interesting. Go ahead. I was going to say, the origin of the Silver Surfer, I mean, that's recapping it pretty darn well, but the Silver Surfer is by far Stanley's most philosophical comic book mm-hmm. that he ever wrote. Um, I love his early stuff. We, we talked specifically about Spider-Man that he did, but um, some of his early things are a little simplistic. Um, he kind of falls into a formula a lot of times, but when he's doing Silver Surfer in the late 1960s, he is delving into issues that you can tell he's been grappling, grappling with like on an intellectual level for a long time. Uh-huh. And some of it is this idea of peace becoming complacency mm-hmm. versus struggle leading to progress. And that what you just described is is a pretty good summary of that first issue. And Greg Pak's not like layering anything on there that wasn't already there. Like, yeah. Stanley had 
um, Silver Surfer <laughs> flying through the stars, philosophizing to well, it himself. Fits, it fits so perfectly inside of the story of Planet Hulk uh, with the gladiators. Um, because so gladiator culture comes from the Romans and the Romans were obsessed with the Greeks and the Greeks were obsessed with this idea of Agon, right? Which is, it's all about, uh, struggle. And for them, that's the good life. And I, I, I'm always interested to see how different people define, like, what is, what is the good life? Like, what is happiness for me? If I could just create my own world that would be sheer joy for me what would it be and for ancient greeks it was a place where they could fight (laughs) like they needed a place where they could um where they could struggle and fight and hammer things out and that was what the olympics was about was about having a place where they could struggle uh together that maybe had some limits on it and that's what politics was about right it's about having a having a forum where you can go and debate things and this is all really exciting to them and i i think I mean, I know people, and sometimes I myself am like, oh, I just, I wish there were no problems ever. <laughs> and, and the ancient Greeks would say, no, are you crazy? That's what life is about. Like, that's what gives life its flavor. It's all about the struggle. That's what makes life great. And, um, and I think I, I, it, that it's interesting. It's interesting to me thinking about Planet Hulk, because here you have the Illuminati, all these uh, Avenger heroes, trying to send Bruce Banner to his perfect world right this is the place where you will be the happiest it's a place where there is nobody else and you can just smash things all you want and you'll never hurt anybody and and what actually happens is hulk goes to a place that's full of incredible amounts of struggle and yet that's where he finds true happiness it's fleeting but he has it (laughs) but he has it and when he has it it is real and it's it feels so good as a reader (laughs) yes when he is actually loved by everyone around him. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that, you know, he found his soulmate in Kaira or whatever. It's that people aren't scared of him, which is the thing that on earth Hulk is constantly dealing with is that he is always the monster. Even when he's amongst the heroes, he's you know, the wild card that they're always keeping an eye on and they're scared of him flipping out and, you know, becoming the monster again. Uh huh. And to have him reach that moment of calm, it's like catharsis for the reader as well. Um, but because it is the superhero comic book that always has a next issue, <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't last at all. I mean, it doesn't even last for one issue that he has has that happiness. Yeah. I was talking to my students about this today. We read this poem by Garfilaso de la Vega. This is this, uh, like, Spanish Golden Age poet. And um, it's a sonnet. And he says, um, this is, like, my on-the-fly translation. He says, uh, for just a little bit, uh, my hope is raised but um, tired of holding itself up, it falls, it falls back down and, uh, and leads me to, like a, to lose my faith. And he says, who can handle such... And then the, the Spanish phrase that he uses is uh, aspera mudanza, which we talked like, a lot about today, but it basically means like such a sudden, harsh change. Like That's the killer. It's not the slow, like, over time. We were talking about sports and how, like, if you just get crushed by somebody, it's really not nearly as bad as getting beat on the very last second, you know? Like, it's that very last second when you have everything in your hands and then it's all taken away. We watched the um, the replay from the Alabama-Auburn when the Alabama... Kick six. Yeah, the kick six. <laughs> And then we showed the fan reactions 
And at the end of the, there's a video on YouTube, and at the end of Hold it, on, just you real quick, see for, the, for any listeners who are unaware of the kick six, uh, Alabama was lining up for a field goal attempt that would have given them the win and sent them on to the national championship game. It was guaranteed if they won this, they'd be in the national championship game. It was a very long field goal, though. weren't they and, winning? weren't they winning by one point? No, I think it was tied. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was tied, and it was going to go into overtime, but to avoid overtime, they got into range to try a very long field goal. And so the kicker kicks it, and there is an obscure rule that almost never comes up, that if a field goal is short and the ball stays in the field of play, so within the end zone, it doesn't go out the back of the end zone, uh, the opposing team could catch it or field it and run it back, and it's a live ball at that point. And so Auburn had actually sent a player to stand back by the field goal post in case it fell short. At the very back of the end zone. Yes. And this is, like, there was one second on the clock when they started this play. (laughs) They kicked the ball, and this guy, with, like, inches to spare, is able to reach up and grab the ball, and then he just takes off down the sideline. And it really seems like a lot of Alabama players didn't know about this rule. It's a fairly obscure rule. It just never comes up. And it takes a while for them to react and try and chase him down, and they do not chase him down. Auburn wins the game and goes on to play in the national championship instead of Alabama. Unbelievable. It's one of the most unbelievable football plays ever. So for Alabama fans, worst case scenario, they were going to go on, they thought they were going to go on to overtime and have a chance to win it still. Like there was no negative in their minds for this play. Um, But then there happened to have been (laughs) one layer worse than what they knew about. And to see, just to see the look on these people's face when they realize what has happened, that just like so sick that you were so close to victory and then it's just snatched away from you in the last second. That's the thing, says Garcia Lasso de la Vega. That's the thing that kills you. That's the, it's that it's that harsh, that harsh change, and that's that's the thing that happens here. And it's the reason why it like it gets you. And it's such a it's, it seems like such a dumb thing. It's the Incredible Hulk. He's this great big green monster, and he runs around and smashes a bunch of people. And he says Hulk smash, and and then and then you have this moment where it's like really touching and he's he's kind of bouncing around on this planet with this beautiful woman and they're so happy together and they have this this moment of intimacy where um he changes into Bruce Banner for her and she loves him for it and and everything is so beautiful and so soft and so not what we expect from the Hulk and then and then there's this huge explosion and everybody's incinerated except for him and it's like <laughs> what <laughs> what just happened? I cannot believe that. It's so sad. It, just br- uh, it breaks your heart. Well, and talking about the art and the the panels that stand out in the so he's in this glowing wreckage of the city, and he had tried to shield his wife, but the explosion was too great, that, and she didn't survive. And it really she dies is, in his arms. There, in, in his arms, and he's holding her like La Pieta, the uh-huh. Michelangelo yeah, statue. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Sure, that's a reference that oh, is yeah. quite deliberate. Absolutely, um, and it's just so tragic. <laughs> like you said, this is a big green monster that is usually around smashing things. But you, you, even if this is the only Hulk story you've ever read, I think you become invested in the Hulk totally. enough that you feel this tragedy um, at that moment. Yeah, and I've never read any other Hulk uh, comics, and I was totally invested in this, and um, and it just it broke my heart. It's it's amazing, and I think it's an amazing piece of storytelling to to do this world building that you talked about, and to bring in uh, Roman culture, and to tie it back to Greek culture, and to bring in the Silver Surfer, who's already a philosoph- philosophical character with this interesting past that ties in also, and it, 
it adds this really complex uh, level of philosophy to this that that makes it like a really remarkable piece of storytelling. And this is why um, I think that comics every once in a while and more often than than most people give them credit for turn into like really compelling storytelling that's done really well. It's super smart and they're drawing on long traditions of things. Like you said, there's a pieta in here. It's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. I want to point out that in the last 10 minutes, the discussion has been the incredible Hulk golden age, Spanish sonnet, uh, championship football and the pieta. (laughs) That's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> You're welcome, listeners. Yeah. Uh, I, I I did have a couple questions as we're getting closer towards the end. Like, what is the definition of the Hulk in this story? Like, as a character, how do you define him? And, and what do you see that uh, exemplifies that? <clears throat> Go ahead. <laughs> I want to say he is directed rage. <laughs> And so he's not pure chaos, which sometimes that's what we get with the Hulk in, in some mm-hmm. Hulk stories. Um, it just depends on who he's been pointed at <laughs> is, is where the, the rage is going to be directed. Um, but we mentioned that he never becomes Bruce Banner in this other than that one moment. And I think he has the simmering anger to the heroes who have sent him off Earth. <laughs> yeah. And then he's also in this super hostile locale um, so that he... Bruce Banner with the immortal peril the the second that he he showed up so he he's got this this anger that comes through both in his actions but also a lot of the words that he gives to the warbound like at one point Meek says what would you do if you found out that like all of your hive were dying because Meek you know he's this he's this bug alien that has a hive mind and he finds his brothers and sisters and they're all dying he says what would you do to the people who had killed them and Hulk's answer is never make them stop suffering <laughs> or something <laughs> along those lines um, which is and it's around that time that Meek has this transformation so, uh, Meek essentially hulks out <laughs> yeah. and um, but Meek is following. I would say solely the negative side of the Hulk's violence. Like we, we're, we've been saying, there's this line between monster and, and hero that the Hulk rides and Meek kind of ends up pushing more towards the monster side than the hero side. Um, but it's, that doesn't seem wrong for me to do that because he has seen plenty of the monster side of Hulk in the storyline. And, and he's also a recipient of the monster side of all the other aliens. Yes. In, yeah. in the world. Yes. He's, I mean, there's, class systems that are in place that are unfair. <laughs> there are, uh-huh. uh, I mean, he's been, he's been a slave, literally a slave. Um, his people have been, uh, manipulated, uh, in every manner imaginable. So it doesn't seem unreasonable for Meek to have a similar level of anger to what Hulk bears. I think Hulk is complicated in this because, I mean, we, we've talked about how his, even his identity and what makes Hulk Hulk, it changes over time. It kind of feels like it changes in the story because the way that I understand it, in order for him to be the Hulk and not Bruce Banner, he has to be mad at the end. At the end, when he's, when he's happy, I think he's really happy and he's like smiling. I don't think, I don't think he's, it's hard for me to imagine that even in the back of his mind, he's still just seething at the Illuminati he doesn't care about the Illuminati. He doesn't want to go back there. He just wants to 
be on his planet with his wife and be happy. And so there's a, there's a part of me, I don't know if this is, if I'm, if I'm nitpicking here, but there's a part of me that wonders how did, how does he stay Hulk through that? Because I, it's hard for me to see where, where, where the anger could be coming from that would be keeping him as the Hulk. Unless uh, maybe as, as Andrew pointed out earlier, he has to be Hulk just to survive on this planet because it's so violent, such a such a harsh, violent place that maybe if he were Bruce Banner, he would die. So I'm wondering, there, like a huge aspect of the Hulk that comes up all the time is his transformations, and we're seeing this planet undergoing a transformation just by the Hulk's presence. Well, not by the Hulk's presence, but by his blood. Yeah, and this is really interesting, no. and I want to talk about that too. But, but I'm wondering if that process had been allowed to carry on, and the planet had actually become much more fruitful, removing a lot of the harsh environment mm-hmm. that was defining it, would eventually things have calmed down enough and Hulk found enough happiness that Bruce Banner is there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I really want to go back and read the, read the, what is it, prelude to Planet Hulk yes, or whatever. Uh, in that storyline, it's um, it's like four issues where uh, Nick Fury kind of re- finds Bruce Banner and recruits him. He says, we've got a rogue satellite that's going out of control. It's kind of gained sentience. <laughs> and, uh, it's in outer space. So we need someone who can handle it, and we want Hulk to do it. And Bruce Banner agrees. Um, and he goes, and you think this is like the start of some storyline that's going to be on Earth. Like Marvel did a really good job of setting this up and not like showing their hand of what was coming. Because I remember like hearing good things about Greg Pak coming on as writer of the incredible Hulk and that he was going to be doing all these interesting things with shield and Hulk. And, um, that all turned out to have been a faint because <laughs> at the end of these four <laughs> shoes, uh, instead of the rocket ship bringing him back down to earth, it just launches out into the solar system. And we see, get this video of the group that's called the Illuminati, which are, um, I think at this point it is Mr. Fantastic, uh, who is the leader of the fantastic four professor uh-huh. X, who's the leader of the X-Men, Dr. Strange, who's the magical master of, you know, the, the most powerful magician on earth. And Black Bolt, who was the leader of a group called the Inhumans. Yep. Was Black Panther there? I don't know if he was at this point. Like, and I think uh, Professor X was... Was he off-planet at the time? Not. I think he, he, I think I he was think possibly he's dead. Okay. So the Illuminati is a group... <laughs> like, he may because, have been dead this time. Because, uh, because you know, sometimes he's dead, sometimes he's sometimes not. Sometimes he's not. <laughs> sometimes he's pretending to be dead while he's off-planet. <laughs> His mind's moved between bodies at times. Um, but the Illuminati was a group that was only created in the 2000s as, like, the most powerful heroes on Earth, like, setting up guidelines of what they're allowed to do, essentially. <laughs> like, uh, here's what we can let the heroes do and not, because this could get out of control really fast. But they never told anyone else that they existed and that they met <laughs> to hash these things out. And this was their solution to the Hulk, where they kind of said, like I said, uh, said at the beginning, he's just too much of a wild card. When he's angry... It's possible none of us could ever stop him. It's uh, Reed Richards, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, and Black Bolt. And so uh, the end of that four-issue arc is just him going off into space and seeing this message playing, and he's just staring at the screen angrily, and then his rocket ship gets sucked into a portal. <laughs> and that's the end of that that storyline, wow. which clearly is supposed to be like going off course. Like they're saying, we're sending you to peace and tranquility, and obviously it's going somewhere else. Yeah. When we were talking, you were talking about your favorite panels. I do want to just give a shout out to the final two page spread of this story, which is Hulk standing in outer space on the bow of the spaceship oh. and pointing the largest sword ever forward. Yes. 
pointing. I'm guessing he's pointing towards planet Earth. There's no way he could know, but it's just a nice, aggressive image. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this dead wife is flipping through this. Todd, you were going to say something about the blood? Well, I think the blood is in, is interesting just because so every time he bleeds, his you know his blood goes onto this ground, and, and this is this harsh kind of deserty planet, and uh, wherever his blood hits the ground, then these vines grow up, and and he's actually uh, his blood is making the, the the ground fertile, and people are able to plant and grow, and uh, this is. Again, it's this, it's this idea that they wanted to send him to a place where he would be completely alone and could destroy everything and it wouldn't matter. And what ends up happening is he goes to a place where he's surrounded by all of these people. And instead of destroying the planet, he actually saves it and, and is able to create life and, and unify all these people and do all this amazing stuff. Uh, and in the end, it's not Hulk that, that destroys the planet. It's the, it's the Illuminati. They're stupid ship blows up <laughs> and the Hulk has nothing to do with it. And it's just, it's, it's ironic and, and sad. And I, I don't know. I just think it's really, really great storytelling. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I said that, um, Hulk holding this planet together is one of them. <laughs> it's so fantastic. <laughs> like the most hyper masculine moments. And it has, you know, a cheesy, but great bit of dialogue written in and it's the ordination, I guess. Um, but I want to say when he returns to planet Earth and he's angry at the heroes, he also um, engages in some hyper masculinity. He peels back the roof of Madison Square Garden to build an arena on planet Earth, <laughs> and he wants the heroes to come fight him—the <laughs> ones that sent him off planet. I think another another of the parts that that stands out to me is so the planet dies. Um, I mean the 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 bomb blows up. And he has his he has his wife in his arms, and this is Pieta, and he says, "I want to die. I want to burn into nothing." But with your bomb, you just made me stronger—the strongest one there is. Because the the more angry he is, the stronger he is. Uh, the only one there is, and you see, you see this kind of uh, pan out, and these you know long shots of him from uh, bird's eye, and then you see his eyes, and then the next page, you see you see this all this rage. And he's smashing the ground, and he's picking up these big rocks and chucking everything, and he's and he's screaming, "Give them back! Uh, give them back! Give them back!" And, he, and this is like Hulk at his hulkiest. <laughs> he's just he's just so angry, and he's and he's destroying everything around him. And then and then the next page, you see all this smoke, and the smoke kind of clears, and and you see this really quiet kind of still Hulk kneeling uh, with his head bowed. And he says, and he kind of whispers, give her back. And it's just, it's just, um, it's like, like, I want to say it's so well acted. <laughs> like it's the, the emotions are so, uh, it's so well done the way that we see him go through this emotional, uh, roller coaster and, and ends on this, um, just sad kind of defeated, broken Hulk. With his, so, head, with his head bowed. It's beautiful. His moment of kind of glory, I guess, is a, a, after he holds the planet together, which, I mean, it's still, he's in the midst of all of this violence and he's holding it together and he saves the entire planet and he, he comes out of this flame and everything um, and he's being hailed, you know, rightfully so, as a hero. And I think this is a wonderful counterpoint where you mentioned, like, 
he is destroying the planet <laughs> in his anger. Like, he's picking up huge chunks of the ground <laughs> and flinging them around in just righteous fury yeah. uh, at this point. And so I think those two moments of him healing the planet with his strength that is still requiring him to be angry and, you know, the rage monster, because that's where he gets his strength and to be strong enough mm-hmm. to hold the planet together. He had to be feeling all of that, but he's using it to save the planet. And here when his people, the entire city, and most importantly, his wife have just died. We, we see the, he is, um, the other side of that prophecy was the world breaker that, um, we yeah. mentioned there's this figure in the prophecy that everyone thinks the Hulk must be this figure. And he, one of the names they had for that figure was the world breaker. And I think here's where you see the world breaker. Yeah. Does brood make it off the planet? I think so. Yeah. Brood and me. So, um, besides World War Hulk and they come to Earth, there's even a miniseries called Warbound, which is about that group of characters mm-hmm. on, on Earth. Just the reason I ask is because there's there's this amazing scene where Brood is playing in this like uh, water fountain with the little kids. <laughs> and, I mean, we talked about Brood before. She's this terrifying, she looks like alien. She's got these long, like always bared teeth and... And looks like a like a praying mantis kind of, but this like horrible, terrifying looking animal. And she's playing in the playing in the water with these little kids when the bomb goes off, and um, and she's able to save. It looks like she's able to save one of them. There's a there's a little panel where she says, well, "You know, we're almost there. We're almost there. It won't be long." And she's just like flying as as fast as she can away from the explosion towards this ship that some of the some of the people have been able to uh, get onto a ship and be saved. And it's, there's just something beautiful in that contrast of this, this terrible, uh, looking alien, uh, holding this little girl in her arms and saying, shh, it's okay. It's okay. We're almost there. It's almost there. It's, just, it's awesome. I love it. Um, and I think that's another counterpoint with when Kaira turns against the Emperor, when mm-hmm. he releases the spikes and he bombs the city where the warbound are. She's holding a yes. child when, when the bomb hits, and mm-hmm. that's and 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 that this, child is incinerated in her arms. Yes, there's a haunting image of her holding a pile of dust after uh-huh. this bomb has gone off. Yeah, and that's when she she turns on the Emperor. So I think it's another echo of that earlier scene. Well, you see it in threes, right? Because you see you see uh, Kaira holding the holding the baby that gets incinerated in her arms and she's safe she's safe from that because it's a lesser explosion and she's you know she's pretty tough herself <laughs> yes um and then and then you see second image now you see uh brood saving the little girl and then third image you see hulk unable to save uh kyra in the same kind of situation Oh wow! I hadn't even noticed that. And until this threes is, and threes are great. <laughs> I mean, th- th- doing things in threes is always a great like. It's a great device. Well, well done, Greg Pack, on <laughs> including that that we just discovered that it's in there, and uh, also a shout out on the art by Carlo uh, Pagulayan and Aaron Lepresti. I think yeah, it's fantastic. It's a beautiful story. I'm so glad that we got to read this. I'd heard a lot about Planet Hulk before, and and I'd even heard the. Um, like the premise and somebody told me, Oh yeah, it's about, uh, it's about Hulk and he goes to this planet and he's a gladiator and he has to fight. And I'm like, that just sounds like a bunch of Hulk smash. Like, uh, but, but when, uh, Carl requested that we do Hulk, it was the only, <laughs> and, and we had a, a few, you know, possibilities. Planet Hulk was the only one that I'd heard of. And so I said, I- I've heard of this one. Let's read it. And I'm so glad. I'm so delighted. What a, what an amazing story. What a beautiful story. All right. Any final thoughts, Todd? 
I don't think so. I will just say, um, at the end of the last Avengers film, Hulk was riding off in a Quinjet by himself. And lots of people speculated that they might do a solo Hulk movie that was following, you know, that was inspired by this. But it turns out there's some rights issues with doing a solo Hulk film. (laughs) (laughs) And so he he could only appear in other film, you know, Avengers films. So dumb. I wish they would just get that all worked out. He's going to be in the next Thor film. It's going to be some sort of buddy film with Thor and Hulk, but he can't. Right now, the way the contracts are, it seems they can't do a solo Hulk film. (laughs) But if they ever did, I don't know how much CGI would be required, (laughs) but I would love to see this film. I know. It seems Uh, like it, it seems like it almost only works in a, as a comic or maybe like a, like an animated version of this. Well, but I think the, co- the comic is better than... I, I think the animated film version is good. I've seen it once, and it was years ago. I think I saw it right when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember enjoying it, but liking the comic better. I think this is... Because they had so much space to work with, like they were able to do the number of issues they wanted to tell the story, it breathes really well. And when you start yeah. to try and compress these longer-form stories into you know the runtime of an animated film or even you know a blockbuster film, I think a lot of what we're pulling out of this and enjoying would probably have to be cut. Okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us, and please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes, and uh, go ahead and leave us a review there. It really helps with our viewership and uh, helps us feel great about our show. Uh, Links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all our shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, Todd K at Todd K Mac, and at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. Our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. And if you'd like to buy a, a topic for us to discuss or show your thanks for the, for the show with a financial donation, you can click the support link on our homepage. You can go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Uh, you can also... Uh, support the show by purchasing anything that you buy on Amazon when you use the link protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Me, 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 me. Yeah, that that ought to be fine. (laughs) Just keep doing that.